Hello, welcome back to Out of Our Heads, a pop culture podcast from the minds of Joe Bortner and bowling expert Nick Bredapapas. Can you share with uh, us some of your bowling wisdom, Nick? Actually, I, I really dislike bowling as a game because I'm bad at it. Um, oh. I am very good at hitting, I mean, not very good, but like, you know, as good as one gets a, a, an aspect of bowling. I'm really good at hitting the ball in the center. Do you understand? Of the pin? <laughs> and somehow... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hitting the ball in the center means nothing when it comes to how many pins you hit down. Like it means you're going to hit a decent <laughs> amount of them, but it does not mean you're going to hit all of them. And that's how it always happens in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like move, and it goes in the middle, and it hits all the pins, and you're done, right? I mean, yeah, you know, it mean? seems like the best way to 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 hit the pins and get all of them out would be to hit it down the center, right? Yeah, but it's not. You have to hit it like slightly from the side of the center. It's, it, mm-hmm. it, I, I really don't like it because I'm just good at hitting it. Right, in the, and it's also the most satisfying. Because then the pins will, yeah, that tracks, that makes sense. Yeah, but. I was very good at getting it into the side lane. That, I thought you were going to say that. That was going to be my joke if you didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> the, gutter. <laughs> the gutter. Yeah, the gutter. That's what it's yeah. called. Yeah, yeah I, haven't, I haven't bowled in a long time. Bowling is weird. There's always that one guy who knows the score thing and no one else does. Like the scoring sheet. It's like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever. What? Yeah. Is bowling still a thing? Yeah, man. Bowling's a thing. Here. Here's some. Um, I mean, I don't remember I mean it's not a thing now. <laughs> someone said this. And I was like, oh. Someone's like, there's a point in your life when you go bowling and you also have alcohol and then everything becomes clear. <laughs> And I, <laughs> I think that's very true, because uh, yeah, that that seems to be the missing the missing part of this equation. And then once once you understand that everything, why bowling exists becomes clear. Right. There's like a there's like a, an arc where you're a child and bowling is fun, um, and then you're a teenager and bowling is boring, uh, and then you're an adult and uh, yeah, like why are adults bowling still? I don't get it. Like, and then you get it. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. Bowling. Do you uh, do you remember the time that I uh, broke my foot? No, I mean I remember this conversation where right where I go, where, I, don't where I ask that. you, and then you go, how can you not remember when I broke my foot? And then I go, what? <laughs> you didn't break your foot, and then you go, yes, I did, and no one remembers in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean the the story is that uh, you know my good friend Parker Conley. Uh, did drop a bowling ball on my foot. Uh, That's funny. And weighed 16 pounds. That's pretty funny still. Yeah. How do you even do that? Bowling is such a like one of the time. What were you even doing? Well, he was uh, he was handing me the ball, and I didn't catch it. Would... So in a way, it was Wait, both our faults. Who hands a bowling ball? There's a whole like shelf of balls. <laughs> I, I've never seen anyone hand a bowling ball. That is insane. I really don't remember why, why this that? happened. That makes no sense. How would you even... I also don't know why I was... Like, there's things for your fingers. I can't understand that. <laughs> Bowling is such a weird social activity. It's like speed dating. Like, you have like 15 second conversations with everyone around. You know what I mean? Huh, yeah. It's just It's just very unique, I think. Because mm-hmm. other things you can sort of like, I'm going to do my own conversation with this person, but like you're thrust in a situation where you can't have like a, 
you can't like you just have to keep changing conversations like you can't have one conversation and you can't really have a conversation only with people you like you know what i mean mm-hmm. like there's always going to be that person that you wouldn't have talked to as much and now you have to equally within those 15 seconds yeah yeah you're right it's difficult to navigate that's where the alcohol <laughs> what nick you have a thing for me uh yeah i'm just gonna do mine quick this week because sure i don't know why um it's a movie. I've been watching lots of movies, old movies, um, and old movies tend to be a little boring, but um, <laughs> this one wasn't. <laughs> I watched uh, Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes, which is sort of a very important movie and a famous movie, and you've probably heard about the twist ending, which I guess I won't reveal. It's not much of a twist, but actually I can't, I can't really speak for that since I knew it going in. Um, but Planet of the Apes, in essence, is a, a spaceship team from Earth goes into space and uh, a timey-wimey thing happens where, you know, time goes on Earth for a while, but they're, they stay young. I don't know. Whatever. Maybe they're frozen. I don't, they're not frozen, but whatever. And uh, then they land on a planet and the girl is dead. I guess that's not really important, but there's three space guys and they're going through the desert and like exploring this new planet. And eventually this planet, believe it or not, has apes on it because um, it's Planet of the Apes. Uh, but mm. you know the, the the thing of this movie is that the the humans are primitive, and they run around being primitive, you know, um, smelling and you know not talking, I guess, and eating bananas or corn. I think they're eating corn in this movie, and then the um, the apes are like not quite humans. Like they don't have like cars and stuff, but they're on horses. They have guns, and they have like a little society, and they're in charge, and they have religion. And, um, yeah, so our main character, which, you know, he has a name. Um, I think it's, oh man, I knew it because he wrote it on a paper <laughs> for one of the apes. Crap. It's, it's like Tony or something. It's not quite Tony. It's something like that. <laughs> but anyways, anyways, uh, you get some fun twists, like just in the way it's introduced. I think this movie does a really good job of like starting out as very, just intriguing like they land on the planet you see them like going around the desert for a while it's got good character stuff um and then it does like a like every time you find something new about the ape society you're like ah wild like you see the apes and you see them on horses with guns and you're like this is crazy already and like obviously i knew this stuff going in but i was still shocked when one of the apes spoke and i was like this is crazy i was like they're <laughs> and they've got these you know ridiculous rubber masks because they're from the 60s um but you sort of lose sight of that after a bit anyways it's um you know it's a good commentary on i guess how we treat animals but also how we treat other people and how we do science and how we choose to think about things because the apes don't believe that humans could have ever been you know as good as them or whatever things like that um Mm -hmm. and they're like there's you know there's a part where there's like a courtroom scene where he's like they're like, you know, the, the, the people on the side of the uh, human, he's clearly, you know, he can think. They say not only can he talk, but he can think. And the opposing uh, lawyer, I guess, he's an orangutan. <laughs> he comes up and he's like, he's like, oh, you, you can think, huh? Well, then why don't you quote some ape scripture at me? Do you know why all apes were created equal? And he asks a ton of questions like that. And the human's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> that's sort of like the evidence of like they can't think anyways it's a you know it's not i'm not gonna say it's like deeply thought-provoking but it is a good 
example, I guess. Like, it's always good to get an argument that's not an actual argument. It's just sort of an example. Because you can't help but watch this movie and be like, whoa, what if, you know, what if it was the other way around? You keep thinking little things like that. Um, <laughs> and it's it's just very engaging. It's got a very good, like, soundtrack. It's got, like, this cool, I can't really imitate it, but, like, drums thing that come in really loud. And, like, um, it's a pretty movie when they're in the desert and stuff. And it's uh, very unique. I mean, I was engaged throughout, not just the beginning. The, the only weird thing about this movie is it has kind of like a tonal shift because you start and you're in the desert and it's like, wow, this is like pretty cool. Like everything seems serious. Like it's just character stuff and they're you know going through the desert. And later what happens is that you get these like rubber masked, you know, <laughs> apes and they look ridiculous and like all the <laughs> talk normally and they have like weird jokes like, <sighs> you yeah, yeah, oh God. Like there's one joke where there's a couple apes sitting next to each other and like one of them's covering their ears and the other one's covering their eyes and the other in the mouth. There's a little like just for human jokes, like for the audience. <laughs> which sort of, you know, it, it just, it's not that either one of those is worse. It just feels like a shift, like a little bit mm-hmm. each tonally. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. Okay, nice. Uh, yeah, Planet of the Apes is something I've been meaning to sort of check out. Uh in my life uh so i think i probably will sooner rather than later yeah i had a little mania um just now because when i watched it i was like oh is there more like i want to watch more um and then i did some research and i was like ah these these other movies don't look as good and obviously the (laughs) reboot franchise or whatever but i think there was more than one. right i mean the the (laughs) the good news for you is that there is so much more did tim burton i think tim burton did a reboot before this reboot or something that sounds plausible i know there are like eight or ten or like 12 planet of the apes movies Definitely. and then like also comics uh, and books and like there's just stuff yeah um but it seems that the, the sequels to this one don't have the same like main character which is a little weird to me um, hmm. i think they they like add something in i read a little bit on wikipedia and it was like oh another spaceship explorer comes following him it's like that doesn't make any sense <laughs> like, i'm already <laughs> less engaged um but I think it's a classic, and I think if you're looking to watch a, you know, an important movie historically and in, in, in the films, in the history of films, I think this is a good choice because it's it holds up. Cool, yeah. So uh, my thing this week is a graphic novel called Asterios Polyp, um, and it's a book by David Mazzucchelli. Um who actually did like some some Daredevil and Batman stuff like way back in the day, but this is nothing like that whatsoever. Um, and this is about a guy uh, who's named Asterius Polyp, uh, who's like 50 years old um, and whose apartment gets struck by lightning. Uh, so he takes the, the bus out to a small town and goes on a journey of, of uh, self-discovery and self-reinvention uh, while he's staying in this, this small town. Uh, and, you know, meanwhile, in the book, we, we get these sections that are set in the past. Uh, they're narrated by Asterios's <laughs> unborn identical twin brother, Ignazio, um, who's like detailing Asterios's life um, and his past relationships um, and a lot of his uh, kind of messed up preconceived notions about himself. Like he's a very uh, Asterios is a very arrogant uh, guy. He like thinks of himself as a very intellectual person. Um, one of like the running plot threads is that he's um, like this genius architect, but he's never actually had like a building built, um, which is like a cool metaphor. Um, and we find out that Asterios is like obsessed with the idea of duality. Um, 
but like you know even more than that like i said earlier he's the kind of guy who believes that he's always right um and that's something that has caused him a lot of problems throughout his life uh when we meet him at the beginning of the book he's like uh divorced from his wife uh his ex-wife um it's also just like beautifully cartooned um there's like some phenomenal line work and uh page layouts um in some sense you get the idea like it's designed to be accessible to new readers um even though the book is absolutely like more adult oriented in terms of its concepts uh there are some really great uh visual metaphors that Mazzucchelli explores in it uh which I, I i don't necessarily want to give away but there is like one of the core ones is the idea that everybody sort of sees the world a bit differently and that it's expressed by occasionally uh the characters will be rendered in entirely different styles oh, nice. um which is really cool uh they they already sort of are already um but it just becomes much more exaggerated in those sequences it's like um that one gag on 30 rock where you, you see kenneth's point of view and everyone's muppets oh right yeah <laughs> it is as you were it's not quite that because it, it seems to be sort of individual uh to these characters um, in the scene where, in the flashback scene we see where uh, Asterios meets uh, his later wife, Hannah, um, like, he is rendered in a very uh, geometrical uh, style. Like, he, he's kind of drawn, like, the, the sort of stick figure you draw before you, like, are draw, drawing a person. Um, and his uh, his future wife, Hannah, is, like, rendered uh, in a way where she's, like, all texture. She's all line work um which is interesting um and so one of the main things that i really appreciate about asterios polyp is that it isn't needlessly nihilistic even though it does sort of explore some of those ideas um i read uh lint by chris ware um a few weeks before this and i was initially prepared for this to be in the same vein as that because they start off touching upon similar beats like that is a book that is very invested from my view um in portraying a main character that is just ruthlessly horrible and never really has like any permanent growth whatsoever um but you know asterios polyp is actually nothing like that asterios very definitively changes and in some ways that's what one of the core things the book is about um like over the course of the book by meeting the people in the town and and thinking about his past he does definitely become a better person and find new ways of living with himself and you know i i really appreciate that i like the idea that even halfway or over halfway through someone's life they can still have the power to make like radical change within themselves uh and that's really cool um you know in a way uh it's just really artful and i think it might have ended up as uh one of my favorite comics at least for the time being um I actually have to write a paper on it uh, for class later this week, and I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Cool. That sounds like something I'll have trouble finding digitally. Um, that might be true. Yeah. Let me check yeah, my no. friend Comicsology. I will eventually read that. I just maybe not soon is my point. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, it's not on Comicsology, is what I can tell you. It's probably on Kindle. Hmm, interesting. 
I don't think I've ever read a comic on Kindle. Yeah, I don't think this would suffer terribly from um, being digitally All right, well, or being read digitally. You'll tell me how to spell it, and then I'll type it out, and we'll check it yeah. It's um In the book, his name is supposed to be Greek, but I don't know if it's an actual Greek name. <laughs> no. Yeah. It doesn't sound very... You want to move on to the main event? The main event. The main event Let's do it. is a sausage-eating contest. Joe and I will be competing can eat sausages <laughs> in the next five minutes. Yes. As we do every week. <laughs> uh, no, we're talking about um, the second, the, the final two volumes of the Nameless City trilogy uh, by Faith Aaron Hicks. Don't worry, Joe, I know. I wasn't really going to eat these sausages. <laughs> uh, but I laid them all out just for you. <laughs> uh, hey, what's with? Do you ever put ketchup and mustard on something? That's insane. Right? <laughs> huh? I don't like mustard. Oh, who am I talking to? Because <laughs> I like mustard sometimes, and I like ketchup sometimes. And if I run out of ketchup, I'm gonna use the mustard. But ketchup and mm. mustard? What are you doing? Oh, yeah, that's where it's at. But. Whatever. Yeah, let's uh, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're back talking about Nameless City. The, these are pretty direct continuations of uh, the book we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, where we have uh, these two characters of um, Rat and Kaidu. Kaidu is a, a you know a boy who is uh, descended from sort of the ruling class in the Nameless City. Uh, his father is a general, um, and those people are the Dao, and they are like currently. Uh, occupying slash doing imperialism in the nameless city. Uh, and Kaidu is, or sorry, Rat is from uh, <laughs> the... <laughs> my, new, uh, my new Instagram bio. <laughs> doing imperialism in the nameless Killing city. slash doing imperialism. <laughs> oh, oh, that's great. Um, what were you saying? <laughs> Yeah, uh, meanwhile, he is friends with uh, Rat, who is this girl who is an expert uh, runner. Uh, she runs on rooftops all the times. Uh, Parkour. All the time. Parkour. Parkour, yes. Uh, I don't think that word exists in this universe, but uh, sure. Um, and, you know, she lives with the monks in a place called, in a tower called the Stoneheart. Um, and she's also, in some ways, the opposite of Kaidu, because uh, her parents were uh, murdered by the Tao. Um her her dad uh it's revealed for uh for weapons trading is that right uh yeah he sold weapons illegally yes um and so you know uh most of the conflict between those two characters uh came in the first book uh they're friends now uh but what happens as these go on is the 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 conflicts that come to the city uh as it prepares to uh <laughs> As as the Tao sort of prepare to you know create a, a council in a more equal society, um, and sort of the the conflicts that erupt from that. Yeah, it definitely feels like the first book is more standalone. It feels like okay, that was the movie where like the imperialist boy and rat girl become unlikely friends and save the day from <laughs> an evil plot, and like that wraps up nicely. Um, mm-hmm. And then these next two sort of feel a little more separate but it's like it's more like a sequel i don't want to say that in a bad way but like it's like oh after we decided to do the it's sort of like it's sort of like if you finish watching a princess movie and then you watch the second one which was them like planning the wedding you know 
I don't know if I 100% agree with that. I think the it's like the they, plots here feel a lot more continuous than like you know, a, directly, a direct-to-video Disney they, sequel. They proposed, they ran off together, and now they're planning a wedding. That's that's directly continuous. You know what I mean? Okay, sure. Well, in this one, it's like, okay, we have decided to do this council thing where everyone's going to be represented in the city, and that's sort of the, like, if you ended the story there, it would be implied that that worked out. Mm-hmm. Right? And then we pick up in the second one, and we sort of find out some of the difficulties that are going on with that plan. And another evil plot a bruin in the in the castle um, yeah and you know, you know I, I i think part of that is when you're publishing like your first book there's a lot more pressure to make that standalone in the case that it doesn't get picked up for a series uh yeah i i think i made it sound like a bad thing because i said well, <laughs> wedding planning a wedding but it's it's not it's just that's just how it feels in a yeah, there are, you know, interesting twists and turns that happen that I think really elevate the story. Even if I think some of it is a little bit thematically inconsistent with the first book. Let's get into it. Because I think we talked yeah. about the first book enough. Um, what's going on sort of in the second book? Because um, it's, it's sort of a little mixed in my memory. But uh, basically, some people in the Dao government are still opposed like to the, to the council plan. But right. the, guy, the main guy in charge, the general of all blades, is into it. So there's sort of, you know, it's slowed down. The process slowed down. It's not really happening. Kai's father is working super hard, but it's not done yet. And mm-hmm. Go ahead. And there's, there's a faction of, uh, as you mentioned, um, there's a faction mainly led by, by Erzi, who is the general of all blades' son. Uh, who has, you know, grown up in the the city his entire life and feels entitled to it very much. Um, And so most of these, you know, from about the halfway point of the second book through the third book, uh, this is mainly his story. Uh, He becomes the villain. Um, And one of the things that happens in the second book, the main conflict is over um, the Stone Heart, which is the place that uh, the the tower that the monks live in, um, because... Uh, we have this new character who's introduced, um, and she's like the the head monk, uh, basically, and she's there to to represent the monks on the council. Um, and the other thing that happens is uh, the Dao, and in particular Kaidu, but he accidentally sort of spreads this knowledge to the Dao. Um, uh, they find out that uh, the monks have kept uh, this manual uh, for how to make what is essentially explosives um, or dynamite. Um, and it's, it's um, this power called the, the Napata, I believe. Um, I don't quite remember, but it's like, a, it's yeah. built up in the last book. And also these one is like a mystical power that the ancients had when they built the city and it's been lost. Right. And allowed them to, to tunnel through uh, the mountain that the city sort of occupies the space within. Uh, and that makes it, you know, an ideal, uh, trading location, which is part of the reason that it's so contested. Um, so I should note, uh, as an aside, uh, that my favorite boys, the uh, the guard, the guard bit characters, are back in this one, and in a big way. Uh, they're just as great as ever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> I sort of forgot the bit in the first part, but I, I like them in this one in that their bit sort of became because I guess they got you know. I guess they last time tried to stop Kaidu from saving the the plot, and in this one, that means that they're ashamed and will do whatever he says. 
Oh, yeah. Really they're like, uh, at the beginning of the second book, especially, they, they, uh, they're like sort of, you know, standing off, do, mumbling, they're doing their thing, and they, they see Rat and Kaido, and they're like, hey, kids, what's up? <laughs> Going on another crazy adventure in the Nameless City? You never know what'll happen here. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's sort of the, the conflict going into, I guess we can do a little spoiler since we're doing all three. Uh, sure. Yeah. But sort of the, the big thing that happens that changes things from like, ah, you know, some people are opposed to this. Some people aren't, um, is that Arizon, um, kills his, his dad and becomes the guy in charge. And he's obviously the main villain. So he's opposed to the council and he feels the city belongs to him. And that sort of starts things yeah. off in terms of, you know, what's actually going bad. Right. And we also get uh, a lot more insight on um, Mira, who is like his uh, bodyguard slash sidekick. Um, and her deal is that, you know, she used to be one of the named, uh, and I guess sort of still is. Um, and she used to live with the monks uh, until she got kicked out for, for thievery. Um and she's an interesting character contrast to Rat, um, just because she's this person who really relishes the idea of privilege, um, sort of after fighting her whole life to survive, uh, and she would do anything to maintain that, uh, even like the relatively loose grip on power that she has. Um, and part of that is like her backing up the imperial infrastructure. That's why she's uh, firmly like with Erzy. Um and, you know, note how after um, the big thing, the big twist happens in volume two, like she's the one uh, who sort of comes up with, who sort of coaches uh, Erzy through like taking over the empire. Yeah, you know, I, I think, and that's really cool. Um, one of the things that is also interesting that's tied into that is um, how in the third book, it's basically revealed that she's just a total nihilist. Um she wants the destruction of the city because it seems to her to be the only viable outcome. Um, like she, she just doesn't believe in, in positive change. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't a hundred percent sold on that transformation, but I guess we know, you know, little enough about her that like that would, I, I guess I could be convinced that that was always her plan. Um, yeah. Um, there was, um, well, I mean, I think that's I think that's a good coverage of the plot. Uh, I think that you're right. That transformation for her was a little, just a tiny bit, sort of out of nowhere. I don't want to say out of nowhere, but like a little bit surprising, not in a good way, I guess. Um, uh, I would say a similar thing about uh, Erzin killing his dad. It felt like that escalated really quickly, and I didn't see it coming in a bad, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like, ah, a twist. It was more like Jesus, like that came out of nowhere, you know? I was, I was very okay with that. Actually. Ooh. I thought that it really accelerated the plot in an interesting direction. Um, and it also, you know, we, we've seen him have this type of, of envy of power and entitlement before. So it didn't seem entirely out of place. Like I, I understood the point where within that scene he felt that he was forced to do it if that makes sense yeah I, I don't know i wasn't for me it was maybe it was just too much of a shock for me because they, they were just like having an argument and i was like all right this is an argument 
and then he kills him. I was like, Jesus, like you didn't seem that angry. You know what I mean? Um, but see the thing, the thing about it that sold me is that he's really upset about it afterwards. Um, and I also think, I, I don't know, as I said before, it, I, I think it's like an interesting enough plot direction to kind of justify, uh, any sort of contrivance that's made to get there. And even I didn't really think there was a contrivance there. So, well, you say that because there was nothing going on before that, before that, it was just simmering tension and that hangout comic you wanted. Uh, <laughs> well, we get a lot of, uh, Kai and uh, rat sort of hanging out, especially in the first half of the second book, uh, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. Um, they do a lot of like, interesting things with their conversations but it's more or less the same you know conflict it's like oh we're friends but i feel guilt that i'm a dao um and i was actually i gotta say i'm a little disappointed that i I felt like that that friendship sort of developed a lot in the first one and then from here was just sort of like one note um and i I, can see that yeah and i so you know i already like them enough and i like their dynamic and they're drawn really you know adorable um but it still felt like a lot of like Kai feeling guilty and like, you know, not always being so settled about that. And then rat was like, well, um, it's not your fault. <laughs> and that was really, it was like one of those conversations you have with a friend where like, you're really sorry about something. And they're like, dude, it's not a big deal. But, like you keep rewinding that. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I guess I can see that. Yeah. Uh, there's some other, you know, they expand on some of the side characters in the first one. Like, um, Kai's dad is really interesting in this one, I think, and they expand on oh yeah his marriage, and I think that's really interesting. It, like informs Kai really a lot, but it's also like an interesting dynamic where like they're married, but it's like do they love each other though, and like how come they live apart? Like it's just a very unique dynamic, and I liked seeing clues about it and then seeing it actually you know come into play. Uh, I yeah. they did a good job with it. I liked I liked his dad character because he feels like uh, you know a real real person. Like he wants to do the right thing um but he's not going about it i mean in the first one he's not going about it 100 percent right and then in this one you see a big flaw in him that he is not a good dad and that you know both of those sides feel very real um and you can see this conflicted about it and i think that just really works uh, as a character beat and uh, mm-hmm. you know less excited by but still interested by the monk character secretly being a warrior uh, i thought that was cool uh, like a bit of lore and I thought it was an interesting mystery sort of going into it um, and there was I mean obviously Erzin gets more focus and I feel like he and his um what's the girl sorry the girl with the green hair. um Mira Mira both of them get more focus and I think there's a couple of flashbacks for both of them which are cool also I, I think you know the thing is it's like it's like I feel like almost I'm about to go into like a big criticism of all, all of these characters and like how I didn't love everything that happened. But the thing is like, it's just such a good book. Like the world is so there and interesting and like all the art is there and interesting. And like, even though like, yeah, I said, uh, you know, Rat and Kai are one note. It's like, I still, still really love like just the way they're drawn and like seeing them interact. And just, just that is so charming that like, it's, it's good. <laughs> if that makes sense. I wouldn't I wouldn't even go so far as to say they're they're one note but just that like they're I think their relationship uh doesn't develop sort of in a significant direction the one thing that we get is uh there's this repeated beat uh where Rat will say that you know she she's there to take care of Kaido um and that it's mentioned often enough that I started to notice and I I I I thought to myself wait that this 
like isn't something she does <laughs> like it like yeah sure they take care of each other because they're friends um you know they, they're they're very close friends um but you know her being the caretaker is not her main role in this friendship yeah like you know they're they're on equal level yeah there's a, look there's a lot of like little weird things and like little things that don't exactly work like i i think that, mm-hmm. i think that Erzin is the most repetitive villain I have ever met in my entire life. He will not stop saying the same. Like I got it from the first conversation. Like you feel entitled. And then he keeps, he keeps, he will not stop saying it's mine. I deserve it for the whole book for like two more books, one and a half more books of this guy saying it's mine. I deserve it. And like, like no conversation with him gets anywhere. So he's just like evil. And like, that's his deal. There's like a lot of that for me. Um, And then there's like, I don't know. There's some some little plot things that bother me also. Um, where it's like I feel like in the third one they do a good job of like the characters lay out a plan and then that plan goes wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a good thing to do. But like also, I feel like some of the time it's just like, well, your solution isn't that clever. <laughs> it's like like their plan was to jump on the roof, which was like an established thing of the castle, right? And I was like, okay, cool, cool plan. That doesn't work out. So what do they do? they climb the front wall. It's like, it's like, what? You know I mean, like, little things like that. Or like, or like his dad is like taken to the wrong camp, um, you know, far away from his goal. And he's like, oh man, what are we going to do now? We're hours away. Um, and then the conclusion to that is like, is literally like one panel where him and him and the whole camp are just like transported to somewhere where they can see the view. And they're like, oh damn, it looks like the army's already there. You know what I mean? So it's, it's like good at diverting like what's happening like oh like something goes wrong for the characters but like not good at actually having clever resolutions to it um and it just sort of moves on that's i can i can see that it wasn't nearly as big of an issue for me but i understand where you're coming from um you know i i <laughs> uh do you want to join me for a segment of uh of joe's weird lettering corner um yeah Okay, so they starting in I think the third volume, uh, the book starts incorporating like these manga. Hmm? Are you going to talk about like the single bold world, bold word in all three of these books? Uh, I don't think so. There's one, (laughs) and I think there's only one. I didn't realize that. Anyways, everywhere. Sorry, I thought that's what you were going to say. Okay, um, starting in the third volume, the book starts incorporating these, um, I guess manga esque speech speech bubbles. Uh, where the characters are yelling, um, but the speaking character is a little unclear. Um, and I, I don't know what to make of this exactly. Um, just it took me out of the experience a little. I don't think it's actually a significant problem, but I, I, I think it's interesting. And I, I could be wrong that this starts in the third volume. It could have been there before and I just didn't notice. But it you know, became a slight issue of readability. Uh, but also this is in obscene nitpick uh yeah i knew i knew this was gonna happen there's just so much going on this like not perfect in this book that i knew you and i were just gonna like tear through little criticisms like here we go but it is a very good book yeah i i am <laughs> i am a little bummed about it because i do like these books a lot and i really like where they end up and i think it's like a really good you know sort of not parable but like you know a uh, story that's like wrestling with the ideas of imperialism and like what do you do when you have a nation like this and like what's the best route um and i think they land on some really solid conclusions and like they're really compelling characters and incredibly charming art uh and the layouts are like 
I don't think quite as strong as in the first book, but they're still really good. Yeah, uh, I was gonna I was gonna jump in with a little more criticism from me. Uh, <laughs> suffered from less good layouts and less good art, like not significantly, but like a little significantly. Um, yeah, just had just had to say that I guess. <laughs> really, uh, thanks over here. Uh, yeah. Here's something I liked. I noticed this sort of not in the first one, but I guess it was probably in the first one too. I like that a lot of the characters, like there's different like um, rate countries of people, country, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, nations. Different nations. Thank you, Joe. Um, and like the characters in the book seem to be able to like distinguish which is which, but I can't. I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. I mean, that, that that makes sense because I think in the real world we have some pretty weird distinctions about who's what no, 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 no. Perfect, that, like we'd be able to identify but thing, like no, an alien would not thing. god damn it this is a good thing joe <laughs> i think it's not clear cut on like you know race or like or like even like anything like any physical thing really i think yeah um i think you know one of my observations about the first book that i don't think i mentioned was just like it builds this really cool alternate system of how ethnicity works yeah. it's like you know, pretty subtle, but it's also like, you know, cool because of course in an alternate world, those things would be constructed differently. I, that's what I think that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like everyone's like, everyone seems to know that the, the big tall monk is like some, you know, he's like clearly Xuyin or whatever. I ever forget what it's called. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? Like <laughs> this dude just looks like a monk to me. Um, and I think that's a cool thing. And like, there's some side characters introduced um, and like, Yeah they're you know they're different i guess yeah there's um you know we we see uh at the beginning of volume two and also in volume three we see um uh iniko and hanya who are who are rats friends uh and they're they're just kind of around Uh, they don't really do anything significant but like they're they're charming enough yeah you know there's a i wouldn't i would i wouldn't even call it a subplot but like i guess because it's it's not present but like iniko has like a crush on hanya's brother <laughs> i mean it's kind of just random like you could cut those two out easily so easily but like it's cool yeah, that- i mean i guess i guess not quite hanya because they end up staying at like her family's house uh in the next volume yeah and you know uh, so i guess she's necessary but like cards so i guess you know they distract the cards for them mm-hmm. so that's something it's not like they don't do anything. It's, it's just... It's, no, it's all right. It's, it's more akin to, like, these people don't need to be here in the story, but also, like, it makes the world feel bigger and better, and, like, I like it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, this was great. Uh, I'm glad we absolutely just tore into this book, these two books that we really like. Yeah, we just like, <laughs> criticizing it, but we love it, though. This is, like, that shitty yeah, uh, girl, you know, who's, like, <laughs> you don't even know her that well, and she's, like, you know Tanya. She's like my best friend, and like I love her to death. But she's kind of a bitch. Like that's us. Um, <laughs> we just will not stop. Not person. even. Uh, however, we not even not. like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I highly recommend. Uh, the, you know the whole Nameless City trilogy. I yeah, think is a. You done been spoiled yeah. in the most confusing way possible. <laughs> <laughs> oh man because faith aaron hicks is a really interesting creator um and you know i'm excited to see what she does with the avatar books from here and also uh what she does with uh her other stuff i know you know i don't think either of us have you read pumpkin heads i haven't read pumpkin heads 
Yeah, I haven't, I haven't either. Um, and uh, it's like her next book, who she does with Rainbow Rowell, who's like the writer of Runaways. So I'm anticipating enjoying that. Wait, uh, Heads is already out, right? Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. Cool. Shall we move on? Uh, so, you know, our segment, uh, this week, as we do every week, uh, it's time for Breaking Bad Update. Nick, I finished, uh, season two. I just finished the first episode of season three, actually. Uh, and I would like to chat with you about it. It's almost over. Any moment now, you will accelerate into hyperspeed and watch season three, season four, and season five in one instance. (laughs) All the good ones. Um, yeah, what's going on? What's going on in season three? Uh, yeah, so, um... In, at the beginning of season three, uh, you know, spoilers for every episode previous to the ones I mentioned. Uh, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad yet, um, and you've made it this far in the episode. Um, so what happened significantly in this episode is that Jesse is out of rehab. He was placed into rehab in the, uh, you know, at the end of the last season. Uh, and Walt has also told Skylar that he, uh, you know, uh, creates meth. Um, which is, <laughs> yeah, because he, he specifically like defines a distinction between dealing meth and, uh, like making the product. Yeah, have you gotten to the part where Walt and Jesse finish cooking and Walt turns to Jesse and says, we made that. We made that together. I think I have. All right. That was a joke. I think that's in the middle of season two. Um, <laughs> wait, is that, is that not real? That was a, we made the baby joke. We made that baby. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not particularly effective i get that now mm-hmm. yeah yeah um you know one of the things i'm mainly reflecting on season two uh, is that i really like the recurring cold open we have um that happens i think three or four or five times throughout the season where we see like this uh shredded teddy bear that's like uh chilling in the pool uh, and you wonder, how did it get there? Why are we focusing on this? Um, and then we find out at the end of the season um, that there's this weird tragedy um, of events uh, that, you know, take this circuitous path uh, back to Walt, um, where he uh, let uh, Jesse's girlfriend, uh, Jane, die. Um, and her fa- father is in air traffic controller. Um, and he made a crucial mistake that caused two planes to crash into each other, uh, and then a hundred uh, hundreds of people died. Um, and this also caused the debris to rain down uh, to Al- Albuquerque, um, including the stuffed teddy bear that lands in Walt's pool. Um, and what's cool about this, other than it being just a, a wild thing to happen, um, is that it's asserting that we're at a point in, in Walt's development uh, where he is uh, such that things he does, bad things he does, have even incidental side effects that result in many, many people getting killed. Um, and that's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is kind of a super wild thing to happen. Like, how, who did yeah. even, who <laughs> done thought of this? Like... It's really <laughs> wild now that it, like you mention it, and I actually think about it for a sec. Um, but it's it's pretty cool, and I really like how they. I don't know if you got into this yet, but they sort of run with it, at least for a little bit. Um, 
Like, it's definitely picked up in season three at the beginning where they have like a meeting at the high school. Um, and yeah. All the kids are there and they're like talking over the experience of having plane debris rain down upon them. Yeah. Which is just like a very like that's how it would happen in the real world. Like uh, mm-hmm. uh, for like making that big like weird choice with the airplane and like then like actually dealing with how that might go. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's also within that scene, which is this in season three now, um, you know, Walt gets up in front of the school uh, and he starts talking uh, and he essentially is like trying to justify why it isn't so bad uh, that all these people died, which like he's he's correct because um, he keeps going over plane facts. and He's like, wow, these these planes weren't even, uh, you know, full. Uh, so it's not even as bad a tragedy as it could be. Like no one on the ground died. Not as big a tragedy as it could be. Um, there are you know, bigger planes that could have been flying. Uh, this is only like the 50th worst uh, accident of this kind uh, in history. And it's like tied with uh, a bunch of other events for that status. Um, so he keeps on justifying like this tragedy to himself as like something that wasn't that bad. Um, and that was interesting to me because like, you know, on the one hand, he is technically correct. Um in that, you know, it's not as bad as it could have been. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also still like a horrifying thing to even make light of so soon. <laughs> even if it is like a crazy thing to have happen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything like... Everything is like a big... Is like a character. Like, it's just sort of like, how will Walt react to this? You know, it, it, it's all... Mm-hmm. Like, anything that happens. Like, that's why it works in this show that that, that it happened. Because it's... It's only going, to, you know, to show you something about Walt. Otherwise, this wouldn't work in any other, you know, other show. It'd just be corny. It'd be like, what? A plane? You know? But yeah, but every- like imagine this happening on like some kind of weird CW show, and you just would not be able to take it seriously anymore. Exactly. And it's be- it's because it's such a character focused show that it works at all. Um, mm-hmm. Like yeah. because it genuinely represents something going on with that character. Yeah, and. uh Breaking Bad is all about actions having consequences in a sort of almost, uh, you know, cosmic way. Um, so that's a, that's a good example mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. yeah. Nick, I believe you have a wise quote for us to close of the show. Uh, I do. Uh, I decided to go with uh, with uh, Winston Churchill this week because I, I realized there <laughs> are a lot of good quotes. I encourage you to look up some funny ones. But I, I went for a wise one, not a funny one necessarily. Uh, are you ready? Sure. I don't have a voice. I wish I did, but I, I'm just not quite ready for that. All right, I understand. Yeah. The whole history of the world is summed up in the fact that when nations are strong, they are not always just. And when they wish to be just, they are no longer strong. Thank you for listening to Out of Our Heads, a pop culture podcast from the minds of Joe Bordner and Nick Protopapis. You can contact us at outofourheadspod at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at Joby underscore draws. You can read my webcomic, Aeronaut, at jobydraws.com. As always, Nick has nothing to promote. Uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It would really help the show. Bye.